This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. 4.6 billion. The Earth Forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Michael Osborne. And I'm Savannah Wartenbach. And who are you? I'm a producer on Generation Anthropocene. And where are we? We are at the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center in South Austin. What are we looking at right now? Describe the landscape a little bit. There is some medium-height grasses, and whenever the wind blows, the grass moves really softly, and I've only really seen that in movies. Kind of a grassland with like sort of a little bit of forest, but sort of like more grassy than forest, right? Describe the pathway we're on. We're walking on a kind of gravelly dirt trail. It looks like it goes uh, in a circle, and I think the plaque we read earlier talks about it going in a circle. So I'm assuming that each one of these trees is kind of commemorating some point in history whenever someone or something happened here. So... My understanding of what this little circular path is, is the folks at the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center went around Texas and asked like each little town and city, where is the coolest, biggest, baddest oak tree in your town? Let's collect some of those saplings. And they came out here and planted it in a big circle. So like all of these oaks are the children of big, incredible oak trees from across the state. That's really interesting, but now I'm going to have to come back when I'm like 80. No, it'll be a while before this place looks cool. But imagine what this is going to be like one day. Do you know why I dragged you out here? We are talking about land use. Yeah, the use of land. So what Savannah and I are looking at right now is currently grassland. Once upon a time, it was very likely forested and one day may become forest again. And that is actually a kind of segue into today's episode. So today on the show, we are doing another in our explainer series. And the way these explainer series have been going is I'll ask my producers to come up with a simple question. They will ask the question at the top of the episode. I'll have a little back and forth with whoever's answering the question. And then at the end, hopefully we get a comprehensible answer. 
So our guest for today's show is Zeke Housefather, who is at the Breakthrough Institute in Northern California. And so here is Savannah posing her question to Zeke. So my question for you today is, why are emissions from beef production so high? So that is a very good question. You know, agriculture broadly is a big part of our carbon emissions. If you account for everything, including direct emissions and land use change emissions, it's about 25 to 35% of all of our greenhouse gas emissions. And of that, you know, not all foods are created equal. Red meat, and in particular beef, is by far the worst. Uh, And there's two primary reasons for that. The first is it just takes an enormous amount of land to produce beef compared to other food. So beef, for example, takes about 300 square meters of land to produce a kilogram of food, uh, or 2.6 pounds, I think. You know, for reference, to produce the same amount of chicken, it would only take about 12 square meters, you know, about 20 times less land to produce the same amount of chicken as beef. So that's one big driver of the difference. The other big driver of the difference is that beef emit a lot of methane, primarily through burping. You know, cow farts are are sort of a joke, but cows don't actually emit that much methane through farting. It's mostly burping. Uh, And methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas. Uh, It's about 34 times more powerful than CO2 per mass basis over the course of a century and about 84 times more potent than CO2 over a period of 20 years. So if you add all that up, what you end up finding is that, you know, you almost have 60 kilograms of greenhouse gas emissions per kilogram of beef um, compared to something like about six kilograms of gas emissions per kilogram of chicken. Um, So again, about 10 times more. So, okay, I want to dig into a couple of parts of this. First of all, all right, it takes more land to make a cow. But how does that, what does that have to do with carbon? So when we use land for something, we're often displacing another use that land could have had. Now, in some cases, cows are raised in areas of the world that have large grasslands and where the cows might have a smaller impact on the land itself. But in other parts of the world, you're converting other types of land into pasture for cows. Um, For example, a lot of the deforestation in the Amazon is being driven by the conversion of tropical rainforest into pastures for cattle raising. And so you might say, okay, fine, you know, they're really bad down in the Amazon, but I get my beef from certified, pasture-raised, grass-fed, you know, the, the perfect thing. And, you know, good for you. But the challenge there is that if you do that, increasing the price of that type of meat, because more people are demanding it, which means that people who don't care as much about the environment might not be willing to pay that price premium and they switch to buying cheaper beef that might be produced in the Amazon rainforest. And so, you know, you can't sort of look at your purchasing decision in isolation from the broader market. And it's the overall global demand for beef that's really pushing a lot of deforestation. But just to simplify it, so when they say that beef production has a crazy high CO2 number to it, you know, part of the math that's going into it is the carbon that might otherwise be taken up by the biosphere, the terrestrial biosphere, but is now not going towards that because it's going towards making a cow. Yeah, or the carbon you get from, you know, directly cutting down the rainforest to to make cows instead. Right. And that's got to be averaged out over the whole globe, right? Because what's happening in a tropical rainforest versus a temperate climate versus grasslands, I mean, that's going to vary 
you know, yeah. regional. But even right? in even in temperate regions, you still have a lot of deforestation being driven by agricultural expansion. So part of it is deforestation. I mean, that's the simple answer. Yeah. yeah, that's a big part of it. But again, about a third of overall life cycle greenhouse gas emissions from beef is land use change, and two thirds is the methane. Got to a lesser extent. There are, you know, CO2 emissions associated with fertilizers and grain production and things like that. What about, like, transportation? Does that matter into it? I mean, the cows are over here and they got to be butchered and shipped over here. Okay, so that's not a big part of it. So transportation is, yeah, transportation is less than 1% of the life cycle greenhouse gas emissions. And that's broadly true for a lot of things that we do. Um, how things are produced tends to matter a lot more than how far away they're produced. Just because, you know, unless you're flying Wagyu beef from Japan on a private airline, (laughs) you're not going to get that much CO2 emissions and and greenhouse gas emissions associated with transportation of food compared to other parts of the the life cycle. Got it. So it really is the methane piece that like, as you said, a third is the land use piece and two thirds is the methane piece. That's like the lion's share of why eating cattle, red meat, is so bad in terms of its carbon footprint. Yep. Uh, it really is the, the methane issue. And again, methane is is complicated, right? Because it's not as CO2. You know, once we emit a ton of CO2, uh, a good portion of it stays in the atmosphere for thousands of years. Like CO2 is kind of forever. Uh, methane isn't. You know, the methane we emit today will be almost all gone within about 12 years or so. But while it's up in the atmosphere, it'll have a much more powerful effect. And so when you're trying to compare CO2 and methane, you're sort of trading off the long-term impacts versus the short-term impacts. Potency and residence of it. Yeah, that makes sense. How long ago did people really recognize this? Like, what's the backstory of people saying, you know what's actually doing a whole lot for global warming? Cows. Like, that actually seems like kind of a not obvious thing for climate scientists to put together. So we've recognized the powerful effect of methane on the climate since at least the 1970s. And a lot of good work was done in the 80s as well. I mean, so it was around then when people started putting together that, hey, you know, methane is a really important greenhouse gas. It's responsible for about a quarter of all the warming that we've experienced since pre-industrial times. And it turns out that about half of all global methane emissions are coming from agriculture. And the lion's share of that is coming from cattle production and other ruminants. Okay. Savannah, is all this making sense to you? Like if somebody were to ask you about the cow greenhouse gas thing now, do you feel like you could give a good answer or is there anything, I don't know, is there any other question you have here? I think I could explain it pretty well. I do have, I guess, maybe one or two like follow-up questions with maybe some like advancements in technology, but I was doing some research about methane digesters where it's just really expensive technology that tries to like take the methane and turn it into a power source instead of just letting it be in the atmosphere. But I was like, there could be a lot of issues with this. They actually also emit, I think, nitric oxide or NOx, some pretty bad things. So I was wondering like, what do you think of some of these alternatives that aren't okay, let's decrease beef production. Let's just make technology to try to make it seem better. So that's that's a great question. It's important to recognize that most of the methane that we're worried about is coming directly out of the cow. It's not coming from the manure ponds or lagoons that are in sort of combined, uh, confined animal feeding operations or CAFOs. Though those are important. They're probably, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but I'll guess somewhere around 5% maybe of the methane that gets produced by the cows directly when they're in these combined animal feeding operations. Uh, and then obviously when you have pasture beef, you know, 
you're getting almost all the methane from the the cow burps and not from their poops since it's not fermenting in these giant pools. That said, you know, it, it makes sense to capture the methane that's coming out of manure lagoons and fermenters and digesters are a good approach to do that, particularly if it's cost effective. But it doesn't really solve the problem, right? You might you might reduce the lifetime methane of cows by a few percent doing that. And so at the end of the day, you know, if you want technological solutions, there are some things you can do that can reduce the impact uh, a little bit. You know, there have been a lot of experiments with things like adding types of seaweeds to the diet of cows uh, that can reduce the amount of methane that they form. The challenge with that, of course, is that most cows spend about 80% plus of their lifetime being grazed in fields. And there they're eating grass. So you can't really feed them seaweed. It's only the the last 20% of, of the cow's life when they're finished, so to speak, in these big animal operations where you feed them grains and you can add seaweed supplements to that. But, you know, that could still reduce, you know, maybe 10, 15% of the methane over the cow's lifetime. You can also change the grazing patterns of cows. You know, some research that suggests that more intensive grazing can help build soil carbon. A lot of cows, you know, passing over and pooping in an area, particularly in the U.S. plains. You know, again, it's not going to make up for all the methane, but it might help offset 10 or 20 percent of the emissions. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, cows are, are not going to be good for the climate. And if we really want to reduce the emissions associated with red meat, we need to convince people to either eat more of other types of meat. Because remember, chickens are 10 times better than cows. Like they're not even remotely comparable. And pigs are six or seven times better than cows. Fish are 15 times better than cows. So Cows are, are really in a class of their own in, in terms of the climate impacts. We're also getting more potential alternatives. You know, there's companies that, to be honest, are pretty indistinguishable from a, a beef burger. In our house, we pretty much use Impossible Meat in place of beef in all of our recipes now. And, you know, we love it. And there's a huge amount of money in the tech community being thrown at lab-grown meats. So yeah. The idea is you can grow a steak in a lab, and then you don't have any of the methane associated with cows uh, or any of the, you know, really gnarly ethical issues around animal suffering that we have in our industrial agricultural system. I guess I'm sure you get this a lot. I feel like you have to ask, are you vegetarian? I'm not vegetarian, but I try to almost entirely eliminate red meat. You know, I've, I'll every now and then, if I'm at like a fancy restaurant, have a little bit. But I'm of the opinion that what matters isn't so much absolutism, like cutting out everything. It's it's the big reductions. Like if you get 90% of the way there, that's 90% of the benefit, right? And so, you know, I think it's an easier ask for a lot of people to cut down and use alternatives when they're available rather than to, to fully give up things. So, you know, if people want to fully give up things, that's great. And I, I want to encourage that as well. Thank you for giving me that window of rationalization. I live in Texas. The barbecue here is out <laughs> exceptional. And I don't think I could just say no to it for the rest of my life. But I also know what the right thing to do here is. So, uh, all right, man. Well, good luck with your research. I appreciate it again. And uh, we'll be in touch. Sounds good. Thank you. Yep. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. That's it for today's episode of Generation Anthropocene. Thank you again to Savannah Wartenbach for her explainer question. Thanks to Zeke Hausfather for helping us navigate that. And thank you to Lydia Fortuna for producing today's episode. And as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.